0: This episode is brought to you by Chalk Cartel. I've tried a lot of different chalk in my 14 plus years of climbing and this is my favorite by far. I love the texture. It's got the perfect amount of grit to it that makes it feel sticky and I swear it stays on my hands longer than other chalks. I have especially been noticing this on some of the longer boulder problems here in Waco. I don't have to stop and chalk up, which can totally make the difference between sending and falling off the last hard, Move. If you want to check it out yourself, head over to chalkcartel.com to check out their shop. They've got quarters, they've got kilos, they've even got a sample pack for $3. I call that the dime bag. So you can try it out before diving elbow deep into your chalk bucket. And if you're hooked, like me, you can buy a subscription and have amazing chalk automatically sent to your house every month or every two months or every three months, whatever you want. All of their package is eco-friendly, so keeping your chalk bag full has never been easier or lower impact. Once again, that's chalkcartel.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next purchase and get ready to join the cartel. I will leave you with this friendly message from my three-year-old niece. Top cartel you for us for you this episode is also brought to you by crimpt this is the best app i have seen when it comes to training for rock climbing if you are a self-coached climber or you're interested in training for the very first time crimpt was designed to give you a professional training experience right there in your pocket. All of the workouts in the app are created by world-class climbers and coaches, Tom Randall and Ollie Tor from Lattice Training, and it's totally free to try it out. The free version gives you access to 75 different workouts that are tailored to help you improve your endurance or your power endurance or your strength or power conditioning, mobility, finger strength, you name it, it's in the app. With crimped, training on your own has never been easier. And I have something special for you today. If you want even more help with your training, I recorded a follow-up conversation with Tom Randall recently. We basically did a full-length episode all about how to program your training. It was super valuable. One of the most valuable conversations I've ever had on the podcast. That is available for patrons who support the show or if you download the free version of the Crimped app right now just to check it out, I will send you a copy of that follow up with Tom for free. Just download the Crimped app and send me an email at Steven at the and make sure the word crimped is in the subject line. And I will send you that follow up conversation for free so you can get help with programming your training. Check out crimped.com, that's C R I M P D.com to get started or download the Crimped app for free. That's crimped.com, or find the Crimped app in the App Store. It's available on iOS or Android. And get ready to get started with your training. This episode is also brought to you by Fizzy Vantage. I do not take very many supplements. I prefer to get my nutrition from whole foods, but I do take collagen. Specifically, I take supercharged collagen from fizzy vantage why is that collagen provides the building blocks that our tendons and our ligaments need to repair and to get stronger i am obsessed with getting stronger fingers that's definitely a weakness of mine and it's very hard to get the optimal amount of collagen on a daily basis without supplementation even if you follow a very healthy diet I've had the founder, Eric Hurst, on the show, and he recommended that I take collagen an hour before my finger training to get stronger and healthier fingers. I have been doing that for months now, and I can really see it making a difference in my finger strength. My fingers feel stronger than they've ever been. Collagen also supports skin healing, which is crucial here in Waco especially, and there's no downside. Just throw a scoop of your favorite flavor into a shaker bottle, and your tendons will thank you for it. So if you would like to try supercharged collagen or any other Fizzy Vantage product, head over to FizzyVantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off your next order. That's FizzyVantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off your next order. Hello, my friends, welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt, as always. And my guest today is bouldering legend, John Sherman. If you don't know who this guy is, John's nickname is Verm or Vermin, Sherman the Vermin. We talk about that in this conversation, how he got that nickname. But the reason I'm telling you that is because the V in Verm is where the V in the V grade scale came from. So if you're talking about bouldering and you say V0 or V8 or V10 or V16, the V stands for Verm, as in John Sherman. This guy invented bouldering grades as we know them. John is strongly associated with Waco tanks. He was one of the most prominent climbers in Waco, maybe the most prominent. He's put up hundreds of first ascents in Waco, and he wrote the first two bouldering guidebooks on the place, He's likely spent more days in Waco than any other human alive, which is awesome. And this episode's really special because I got to spend time with John the Verm in Waco and climb with him. And we actually recorded this episode in Waco Tanks in the state park itself, which is just too perfect. So this is a really special episode just for that reason. But it was super interesting. Anyway, John is A character. He tells great stories, and he's a really thoughtful and interesting guy. He's got a little bit of a a crusty shell, shall we say? But there's a a really thoughtful, kind-hearted, and interesting person underneath. And it was really fun to see a different side of Verm in this conversation. So we talked about the earliest days in Waco, what it was like 30 years ago. We talked about the evolution of climbing shoes, doing highballs ground up before crash pads were invented. And John talked about the different layers that we can experience in bouldering. And I think he feels that some of those layers have been lost. And I think this was really cool. Just a good chance to hear a different perspective, a perspective from a different time. And hopefully all of us can just gain a little bit of perspective on our sport through listening to John tell his stories. He told a really gripping story about climbing the thimble ground up with basically a welcome mat as a crash pad below him. And that's it. If you don't know what the thimble is, you should definitely look that up. One of the most groundbreaking ascents in climbing by John Gill um, that has ever happened. And we talked about John Gill in this conversation as well, the godfather of bouldering and his influence on John Sherman. So Lots of good stuff in this conversation. Uh, Unfortunately, we got cut off pretty abruptly at the end. We had to be out of the park by six o'clock and had to pack up and start hiking out. And we didn't get to everything that I was hoping to get to. But as you'll hear at the end, we made plans for around two. So if you enjoy this conversation, keep your eye out for that coming soon. Thank you guys for tuning in to another episode. And without further ado... Please enjoy this conversation with the legendary John Sherman. Man, well here we are, John. It's good to be here with you. Oh, After, w- welcome to. After a few yeah. weeks lead, leading up, um, this is really fun. This is already a very memorable interview, even though we just pressed the record button, because you know, I, I think I've done 90% of these in my van <laughs> fly buzzing around. Uh, I've done 90% of these in my van, either in person or talking to someone on zoom mm-hmm. in the van. And, you know, a few times a guest has invited me into their house or something like that. But, um, to be well, talking with... You're in my house, man. Yeah, to be talking with John Sherman, literally in Waco. We're in Waco right now, not just nearby Waco, but in the state park. Actually, I'll, I'll hand it off to you. Can you tell me where we are right now? We are on the
1: East Spur in a wonderful cave, uh, sadly off limits to climbing, but not off limits to coming up and talking and looking at some of the rock art in the back. But uh, on the other end of the cave, away from where we're at and where the rock art panel is, is amazing crack, problem called Mother of the Future, uh, which sadly has been closed, but was uh, certainly the premier roof crack of uh, Waco tanks back in the day, Mm -hmm. along with the Terminator and the Morgue. That's the Triple Crown. Do all three of those in a day? Yeah. You can be awake a Waco crack master.
0: <laughs> mm. Is that is that the stuff that people were drawn to and looking for? Was this steep roof cracks? No, fuck, I was the only one who did the triple crown.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, man. No, no, no. Actually, you know, the morgue's quite a popular problem, or was back then, back in the day. Crack climbing, you know, I mean, we're talking early 80s. So, you know, sport climbing really hadn't taken off yet. So. Um, you know, most climbers had some sort of trad background and they knew how to jam and, you know, they climbed lots of cracks and stuff like that. So naturally, you know, if you're bouldering and you want to do cracks and you don't want to get you know too far off the ground to where you're in solo territory, you're going to be doing roof cracks. Mm, sure. And so, and Waco just happens to have quite a few amazing uh, roof cracks I just named three of them, but there's plenty more. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And this, to my mind is, you know, that was, uh, I mean, it's, it's striking. I mean, it starts out for fingers for like, what, about, uh, 15 feet of fingers through a dead horizontal roof, uh, to another 15 feet of fingers and thin hands to get to the lip and then, uh. A glorious i don 't know twenty or thirty feet of
0: uh, happy hand jamming to do your victory lap once you pull the lip, yeah it looks amazing to paint i 'm going to paint a little bit more of a scene for people listening, so John and I are sitting in an open mouth cave we 're each sitting in our own respective lawn chairs that we carried up here we uh, We're, we're kind of like an old couple like an old retired couple just getting ready to watch this, the sunset, just staring out over <laughs> <laughs> the countryside. I, I'm, I'm retired. <laughs> and you, this, this you need cave, to get a
1: job, son. <laughs> this cave goes maybe,
0: I don't know, 30, 40, 50 feet back, and it's about, I don't know, the ceiling's maybe 10 feet tall, 40 feet wide or something, just a perfect spot to, to hang out. Beautiful, so tall of, over on that side of the cave, a couple of in front. Hmm. Few cat
1: claws, not my favorite plant here. But uh, actually, when they uh, when they bloom and stuff like that, when, you know, when, once they leaf out and stuff, uh, they're a quite an attractive plant. But mm. uh, in the middle of winter, when they're grabbing you with those <laughs> the cat claw thorns, um, yeah, they're not that. Uh, not my favorite. Love the ocatios though, and the sotols. Those, those are my two favorite plants here.
0: So you've been coming here for forty years? This is it forty? Years. I've been coming
1: here since the Winter
0: of 82, 83, so that would be 39 years. 39 years. 39 years. So I want to add a little more color. So um, I'm going to tell people how you and I connected. My friend Casey, I think, is the one that put us in touch. For people that have listened to any of the the Q&As that I've done, if you just pick the most ridiculous question from a listener in the Q&A, that's my friend Casey. But anyway, Casey (laughs) reached out to John and... uh, Offered to connect us. And then I I think that led to maybe a text message or two, but pretty quickly you and I were on the phone talking. And I think right away you said, Look, I'm familiar with who you are. I'm willing to do this podcast, but I know you're going to ask me what it was like 30 years ago. And I'm not going to tell you until I've shown you. So a few weeks ago, John took me out bouldering to West Mountain and, and gave me a tour of all the boulders that were. Had been done 30 years ago before no, Crash pads. all, about 2%. 2%, okay, okay. <laughs> but some cool ones. But yeah, we like show up and I was wearing literally John's shoes, his EBs that are two sizes too big. I they, wore my socks with Those were with them all day. Uh, ballet points. Ballet
1: points. Yeah, so they had sticky rubber on them. You weren't, okay. You weren't going back <laughs> that far back to the non-sticky rubber days. I wish I could have uh, had that experience for you lined up. Yeah and uh, some you know, hip belays, no <laughs> leg loops, you know, that sort of thing, but yeah, maybe maybe next time. Maybe for the
0: follow-up. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Things to look forward to. Amazing. Patreon uh, listeners. Listen yeah, the, to Stephen cry <laughs> <laughs> as,
1: as he learns to Dolfer sits rappel. <laughs> oh my gosh, and
0: pr- fall to the ground and break my ankles. But uh but yeah, so I'm wearing John's shoes. What so what, give me what year were you wearing those, you think? Well, that, that particular model
1: came out around 1990. Okay. 83 was the year that uh, Rays first showed up in the States. Uh-huh. And that was the first sticky rubber shoe. Boreal made those. And uh, they changed climbing overnight. I mean, you put those on compared to EB's. Everybody instantly, you, all you had to do is buy a pair of shoes and you were climbing three letter grades harder. Especially with the style of climbing back then because, you know, mostly it was traditional climbing, slabs, cracks, stuff like that. And uh, and it made just such a huge difference because you had a lot of weight on your feet. Mm-hmm. There wasn't as much steep climbing uh, being done as there is now where you're struggling to get weight on your feet and take it off your hands because you're you're gassed. But, um Anyway, uh, then you know, once those came out, boy, man, well, that changed things. But the original ones, like like when I did this, uh, Mother of the Future here, this that was it's got to be eighty three or eighty four, and I had the original Fee Ray boot on then, okay, and it didn't have sticky rands. and I had a fairly boxy toe compared to today's shoes, particularly the slippers. Now I, I came back and I did it again in a pair of Ninjas. It was like two grades easier. <laughs> it's kind of like, whoa. I mean, I, I like had a sticky ran and a really thin toe uh, and stuff like that. But it, it was it was still hard. Um but uh so that sets the scene for where technologically the sport was at when I first got here mm. is you know the first sticky rubber shoes were starting to to hit the market, probably not my f- first season here because I remember uh, like when I put up Sign of the Cross, I was in Clutter Shoes doing that. Clutter Shoes? Clutter Shoes. That was what I was wearing... Uh, on that day? Yeah, on that okay. tour I took you on, um, I was wearing these um, <laughs> shoes that they they were a popular climbing shoe in the 60s. They
0: look like dress Austria. shoes, like really low-profile oh, dress look, shoes. they look on sharp, those. don't they? <laughs> <laughs> they do, but they do not look like what we think of. They look like bowling shoes. That's what they look they like.
1: They do look like bowling shoes. Actually, yeah. they do. A, a little higher top uh, than a bowling shoe, like a mid-height bowling shoe. And we would take the lugged soles off the bottom and we would replace them with cat's paw neoprene work boot soles. Okay. And, you know, because it said non-slip grip on the on the, <laughs> uh, 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 on the the sole. So, we figured, man, this has got to be the bomb, you know. But those things would edge on a dime. And you could do mm. problems in those and stand on holds in those that you could never stand on in a modern shoe right now. And, uh, you know, but... Once, you know, the the sticky rubber came out and really soft, soft sticky rubber shoes, you know, uh, uh, slip-lasted things and everything, then you didn't have to stand on small edges. You could just paste your foot and smear over them and get generally an equivalent amount of weight on your feet as you would if you were driving really hard on a dime edge in something like a clutter shoe. Mm. But... Didn't have that option back then. So, uh, I mean, I've got photos uh, doing the first ascent of Sign of the Cross, and there I am in my clutter shoes. And uh, so that first season would have been without uh, uh, sticky rubber back then. But then the next season, well, I mean, as soon as sticky rubber came, everybody was jumping on on that. I couldn't wait to... God, I hope I can find some sucker to buy these EBs I just got because... <laughs> <laughs> I had, I had, my parents had just gone to Britain. I had them bring, bring me back a couple pair of EBs because uh, they were really cheap over there and they weren't that cheap in the States. And and uh, and then I got those right when Firae's came out. I was going like, oh my God, I got to get rid of these now because these other shoes are so much better.
0: So. Do you remember? Sorry to whoever I sold those to. <laughs> my bad. <laughs> oh man, I was young then. Um, Cheap. Do you remember your very first day at Waco, and what brought you here? Mm, like, was
1: no, I do not remember the very first day. Well, I'm, we'll have to put a caveat there. I don't. I don't remember what I had for breakfast. So, <laughs> okay. um, uh, yeah. No, unfortunately, part of being my age is. Well, not everybody, but uh cognitive problems and, and memory loss and stuff like that. And I'm starting to feel that, mm. unfortunately. Um but uh but I remember I was out in uh climbing out in Joshua Tree and then um you know, we met uh some climbers from El Paso.
0: How long had you been a climber? Since seventy four. Okay. Okay, so quite a while before you ever came out here. Yeah, I'd already been climbing
1: for, what, eight years or something like that? Um, so, uh, yeah, so anyway, um, I met some climbers from El Paso, and they were saying, wow, maybe we got this great climbing out there. you got to come check it out. They showed a few pictures. They didn't have many, but there was a couple. I was going like, wow, there are cliffs. What, climbing in Texas? No way. Because when it first mentioned it, it was like, ha, yeah, whatever. You're high. <laughs> you know, just... Because everybody knew, I mean, it was just an established fact in the climbing world that there was no climbing in Texas, no climbing in a lot of states, you know? You just, you would never have thought that such a thing existed in Texas or Oklahoma or, you know, even Illinois or something like that, you know? I mean, it was just like, and now we know that there's like amazing climbing just all over the place, but but back then... um, that information wasn't disseminated much. And so, uh, but it seemed like, wow, these guys seemed really earnest and they had, you know, some photos backing it up. So came on out. Um, I, I, I was climbing with Todd Skinner out and Joshua Tree at the time and, and he came out as well and uh, checked the place out that that year. And... I instantly fell in love with the bouldering here. You know, it was, I, I had a strong background in it from, you know, when I started, I started in Indian rock in Berkeley. So I didn't have access to anything but bouldering Mm. most of the time. So, but I also, you know, I had great appreciation for it because of that, because, uh, you know, it became, you know, my lifetime obsession then. And so I was bouldering all the time. And uh, when I got here, I was going like, wow, yeah, these you know, cliffs are kind of cool, but these boulders are freaking amazing. And, you know, I like them better than like the famous boulders in Colorado. You know, I just I graduated from college like in 82, so like probably right before, uh, or maybe it was 81, <laughs> here we go with the <laughs> memory loss, uh, but maybe... uh, uh it's okay. I'm not going to fact check the dates. Yeah. Okay. Great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, I climbed a lot in Colorado when I was in college, and so I, you know, I'd done the Gill problems. I'd been up the to Horse Tooth, mm. and I'd climbed all over Flagstaff, doing like the, you know, the Gill problems, the Mint problems, failing on the Holloway problems. <laughs> you know, um, I'd I'd seen a lot of the really famous bouldering in Colorado, and got here, and I was just going like, oh, man if anything, this stuff is better. I mean, like maybe way better. And at that point, I had only seen the tip of the iceberg. Mm. And, uh, but, you know, spent the winter and the next and the next and the next, and the next, uh, you know, basically 13 years in a row, um, spending seasons here. You know, sometimes it's maybe only a month or two. Other times it'd be the whole, you know, as long as I could, I could eke it out and could afford to. And, uh, just putting up problems, developing bouldering, you know. I mean, if I wanted to do problems, I mean, I pretty much had to put them up, a lot of them. I mean, there was there's definitely some really good problems that had been put up before I got here. You know, like Mike Head had done the Mushroom Roof, for instance, which is, you know, phenomenal. And one of the hardest problems in the park at the time, if not the hardest one at, in the park when I showed up. And uh, what he, what grade is
0: that approximately? Just for oh, reference? it was
1: like standard V eight. Okay, yeah. Wow. So I mean, yeah, no hard eighty two, wow. Oh yeah. Well, and he probably put it up before eighty two. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, you know, Mike, he could have just totally cleaned up on the bouldering here, but he was he was more interested in putting up the climbs, the rope climbs. Okay, and he put up so yeah, probably more of the climbs here than everybody else put together. Wow, and. He was, uh, and he was putting them up in ridiculously bold style. I mean, for instance, Sea of Holes, really classic uh, climb that, you know, many, many people do. Well, imagine going up on the first ascent of that without a rope. Just, I'm going to climb this wall. And getting up to the top and realizing, oh, oops, somebody threw a 510 move in up here. <laughs> <You know? laughs> on, on, on flexi flakes, yeah. you know. Yeah. But I mean, he had an incredibly cool head, and he did these incredibly run out, scary uh, leads here. Very few bolts back then. You know, people were hand drilling and stuff like that, and you know there were, it it was frowned upon to bolts here, if not illegal. So they would sneak them in and hide them well. There, you'll see bolts hidden back inside Waco's from back in the day and stuff (laughs) just so the Rangers wouldn't see them because they didn't want to piss the Rangers off. They wanted to climb what they wanted to climb, but they wanted to do it in a manner that, you know, the Rangers were none the wiser and, you know, everybody kept the peace. And, uh, so anyway, yeah, you know, there was, there's quite a few rope climbs at the time. A lot of them that have been retro bolted into sport climbs now, um, you know, seal holes has got bolts in it now and stuff like that, and something like window pane that used to be protected by like I think two fixed hexes, in in you know sideways and you know hammered into these Wacos. Uh, you know now, yeah, you know, now that's super popular because it's got a whole slew of bolts in it. Um, but uh, you know that was his main focus was developing the rope climbing here, whereas you know my focus was wow I. I, I don't want to mess with, you know, waiting around for the sun to come around in the morning and finally get over to the, all these west-facing things and, and do these routes. I, I, You know, I just see all this bouldering. I, I, mm. I just really want to do. But like I said, you know, he'd he done the Mushroom Roof. He'd he done uh, the Bucket Roof. Amazing climb, unfortunately, also closed. Mushroom Roof is closed. So many of the old classics, which are... Truly, so much better than the new ones. I mean, they won't even let you look at these things. They're so amazing. Uh, and because, you know, they've... Uh, I don't know if they really want to... I mean, I think they're they think they're think punishing us more by not letting us even look at the 45-degree wall. But if they let people look at it and not be able to touch it, that would be even more painful. <laughs> Got it. Oh, my God. Yeah, you know, it's that's Got the supermodel just... <laughs> coming up and teasing you ruthlessly or something like that yeah you know.
0: what was the paradigm of bouldering when you when you first showed up here like were you a total weirdo in the climbing scene or did people kind of get what you were doing I mean was was bouldering still just practice climbing as far as most people were concerned or had it mm, had it established no itself
1: as... I don't you know in the 70s I would say that bouldering wasn't viewed as practice climbing anymore Okay. You know, I mean, Gill had legitimized bouldering back in the '60s. John Gill, yeah, and and then uh, you know that book, Master of Rock, you know, which is a biography of John Gill, really went a long ways towards educating people about what Gil, you know, who Gill was and what he was doing. And he was a bouldering specialist, and he he changed climbing forever, mm. as much as any climber ever. You know. As much as the guy who invented belaying or whatever, I mean, you know, Gil. You know, the reason people throw dynamics now and climb in gymnastic style and everything is all due to Gil having been a gymnast and viewing the, the boulders as a form of gymnastic apparatus that he could do gymnastic movement on and uh, and perform routines on, mm. which. Then you know, I mean, that's the backbone of any bouldering. After that, and, and that which then also became the backbone for sport climbing. Right, right. So anyway, uh, in the seventies, if you were gymnastically inclined and in a climber, and you wanted to do like the hardest moves, and you wanted to uh, challenge yourself and, and and climb dynamically and stuff, you went bouldering because sport climbing didn't exist yet. Mm. And so when the 80s came around, or the mid-80s, okay, this is another revolution. There are three things gear-wise. We can get into the other ones, whatever. But I already mentioned the sticky rubber changed things overnight. Yeah. Um, The other thing was the cordless rotary hammer. Oh, yeah. Because when you had to drill by hand, it took a really long time to drill a bolt. It was very difficult work. Um, hence people would drill as few as possible because it was a real pain in the butt to put one in but once the cordless rotary came or came out and you could just spray bolts in it, it just super fast you know something that would be really scary because you were probably drilling on leads standing on tiny footholds <laughs> letting go with both hands and, and hammering in this 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 drill bit uh, you know all of a sudden once you embraced rappelling down and with a cordless rotary hammer you could you could put a dozen bolts in for every bolt you could hand drill wow yeah and uh, and that just that is what really i feel pushed sport climbing uh, over the top you know if people had had to hand drill i don't think sport climbing would have ever gotten mm. to where it got now but so in the 70s bouldering was seen as the the gymnastic end of climbing and if you're gymnastically inclined you were naturally gravitating towards bouldering whereas once the mid 80s came around cordless rotary hammers came around all of a sudden it's just like oh i don't have to hit the ground anymore (laughs) you know pads weren't out yet we didn't have them yet you know so bouldering was it was a it was a hardcore contact sport at the time
0: and so with the ground yeah yeah.
1: so once so, so, so then yeah so once the you know, sport climbing came along a lot of people who would have been boulders or were boulders switched to sport climbing uh, because you know it was safer and for them just as fun and so that's when i think this kind of fallacy of like oh bouldering was not considered an end in its own it was just practice climbing yeah well before gill yeah sure i would buy that mm-hmm. you know People generally considered it practice for other things, even in places like Fontainebleau. You know, they they would have those big circuits to to mimic a big day in the mountains. Right. Know, like you're climbing the Drew or something like that, you know? And uh but then, you know, the whole gymnastic, you know, Bent came with Gil and in the 80s, those people started gravitating towards sport climbing, unless you were someone like me, so maybe it made me a weirdo in the 80s that I still stayed dedicated to bouldering, but that's because I was ethically opposed to sport climbing. Okay. And so, um, you know, it wasn't how I was brought up. Um, Climbing was the most important thing that ever happened in my life, period. And so to give up on how I was brought up and taught and everything like that, I wasn't ready to do that. Mm. And uh, so I stuck with the bouldering at a time when a lot of people weren't doing it. And that would that would be from the, you know, uh, uh, mid eighties, say, you know, once the sport climb really started taking off to the end of the eighties. That's when we started using the pads.
0: And that's the third. And that's the, that. Technological Well, advantage.
1: no, I mean, well, actually let's say four, okay. Pads changed bouldering and made it popular again. Mm. Pads and V grades. They came out at the same time, basically. Um, You know, all of a sudden it was safe. And then there was a yardstick, you know, (laughs) to measure your ego against. And, you know, that was an irresistible combination for people. (laughs) Uh, The other one would have been cams. Ah, And all of a sudden stuff that you couldn't protect before became protectable. And that opened up an amazing number of new routes pretty much overnight to people i I look at the 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 when I say something was a technological advance, you know I hate that terminology game changer mm. because it's way overused uh you know, but certain things did change the sport for forever yeah it history yeah I would say yeah, I would say you know those things pads uh cams, cordless rotary hammers um Sticky shoes, you know, sticky, sticky rubber. You know, those are those are all technological things that did. You know, Gil, he changed it through being such an independent thinker and being an original. And it's a lot easier to change something through being, through coming up with some t- technological advance. Very few people are as uh, the kind of original thinker that a Gil was. Mm mm mm-hmm. I, I, I you know I don't know if I could name one. I mean, Gil, I mean I've I know John and I've climbed with him and just I mean he i it, it, it it's hard to try to relate to him being uh, uh, you know Homo sapiens, you know? <laughs> I mean he he is he he thinks so out of the box and um With everything or just with climbing? Well, I, you know, maybe it's because he's a mathematician and, you know, I'm not. And so my brain doesn't work like a mathematician's does. I haven't got no training in that respect. Um, So that that might have something to do with it. There's been a lot of brilliant mathematician climbers out there. Right. Yeah. It's, it's pretty intriguing Um, uh, when you look at it. That's, seems to be one profession that lends itself to people being
0: drawn to climbing as well or
1: having the mindset to be
0: good at it. Well, I wanted to ask you this. I mean, so that's, you just gave us a great sense of what was happening in climbing at the time. What was happening in Waco when you showed up for the first time? Because now we think of it as this, we think, you know, when I think of Waco, I think of a few things. It's a world-class bouldering destination. That's its reputation. But then Anyone who's been here or heard about it or thought about coming here has likely heard about the complicated logistics and the restrictions and you have to get reservations and you have to get a guide if you want to go to the East Mountain or the West Mountain or the East Spur. It's just tricky, you know, and it's protected because it's such a beautiful cherished, you know, a, a resource that should be cherished because of the Native American rock art. You know, we're sitting under some beautiful rock art right now. Um, And that's why, that's at the heart of it. But what was it like in 82 or winter of 82? Was it a free-for-all or was was it a state park? Well, pretty much. But, I mean,
1: I I I spent many days in the park when I was the only person in the park who wasn't a ranger. Wow. If you call that a free-for-all, I don't know, (laughs) maybe that's a free-for-all. I was free to do whatever the hell I wanted because there was... You know, the rangers weren't patrolling around and, you know, figuring out what I was doing. I was just wandering the park and trying to find new stuff to do. I mean, I never had to wander far. I mean, that's the whole thing. Is it's like I was constantly every day finding new stuff to do. And so, uh, and then when there were people here, if there were, you know, other climbers here, it would be a handful. Count them on your fingers few years later, maybe fingers and toes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, up until, I would say about 87 or eight or something like that, maybe, it kind of became better known. There was a guidebook before the ones I wrote um, called Indian Heights, and it was a very... <laughs> anyway, there was a guidebook uh, that uh, Mike had and Dave had and James Kump did, mostly about the rope climbing. There's a few boulder problems in there. Um, but uh, that had a an article that they penned for Climbing Magazine. And that was, I think, the first time that it was really publicized... You know, to the climbing world at large, mm. but that didn't attract too many people right off the bat. I was trying like hell to get people to come here to climb with me. Nobody's going Texas? No way. There's no climbing in Texas. I'm going. No, really, it's amazing. You won't. You won't. You won't believe this place. It's off the hook. You know. It's just like, eh. and then it's funny. You'll beware of of what you wish for. Because then all of a sudden, when people realize that, oh, holy shit, he was right, this place is incredible, you know, then it's like, come on, why don't you go, people go away? Thank God they all left for Vegas this year. <laughs> it's been pretty slow this year. Yeah. Like, Vegas yeah. is so cool. Oh, my God. That's the best choice in the world. Everybody go out there. You got to go out there now and do those problems while they still have holds on them. Because <laughs> otherwise, if you wait too long, you're you're going to miss the boat, okay? Everybody, go to Vegas now and for the foreseeable future. <laughs> Oh man! I mean, if any boulder problems had a half life, it'd be like at Craft Rocks. <laughs> That's true. <I> mean, That's <laughs> true. If you wanted yeah. to find a half life of a boulder problem, it'd be like how long it takes for half the holds to break off. You know, sure. <laughs> the Pearl has already reached its half life. I mean, probably a long time ago. <laughs>
0: uh, give us give us a day in the life back then. Were you just living in the state park? Was there a campground at the time? Yeah, and yeah. You- Same campground looked identical. Wow. Same toilet blocks, same sites, surprising. everything.
1: <laughs> it, you actually not know, surprising. It doesn't um, exactly look modern. Yeah. I mean, they upgraded the electrical outlets to you know, where they could handle an RV plugged in now or whatever. But, I mean, other than that, nothing much has changed about the campground. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I was staying there. And, I mean, okay, this is how things have changed. Back then, I remember, you know, I mean, I'll... On great terms with the Rangers, That's you know so much so that I was invited over for Christmas dinner at the Rangers' residence here. Wow, you <laughs> That's know, awesome. That's uh, awesome. That would never happen now, <laughs> not because of me, but because of a lot of a lot of Waco history that went on in the meantime. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's uh, I don't know if we even want to get into that. That stuff's all downer.
0: Yeah, let's, um, let's skip it but, at least for now. But the
1: uh, but yeah, it was, uh, you know, a day in life would be, you know, get up, get dressed, eat, whatever, go out and climb, 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 climb. And then every day I would walk back a different way to the campground. Mm. Because even though it's a small park, you know, a few square miles, it is remarkably complex. Mm it's like this giant 3D chessboard with boulders stacked on top of boulders and multiple levels and hidden corridors and you name it. And, so many nooks
0: and crannies. And yeah. So
1: yeah, and and I, and I wanted to see it all, and so I was, you know, I I'd go back a different way all the time, and every time I would find something else. It would go on my list, and I had this giant mental list of you know stuff to get to. Oh man, you know, it's like. Ha, star power, super popular problem now. I knew about that problem. I'd seen it I, I, and I forgot where it was. Oh. And it took me years to find that thing again. <laughs> I, know, wow. I know there's this huge roof. It's just laced with jugs. It's going to be so cool. And it was, you know, it's, I got to get to it one of these days, but, you know, I had other things I wanted to do even more. And then when I was finally like, oh, I wonder what, you remember that roof? It was just like, and then I couldn't find it. <laughs> And I had to look and look and look. I finally found it again. I was going, oh, man, it's just as cool as I thought, you know? So, yeah. uh, I mean, it was like that. It was, I mean, holy smokes, you know? We throw a cliche at it. The whole kid in the candy store, I guess, Mm. would be the one, you know?
0: Um, So, first season, no sticky rubber. After that, sticky rubber climbing shoes. No crash pads for at least a few of those early years. Yeah, for until probably,
1: I would say we started making our own. And it was, it was Fred Nikovic and Donnie Harden that were the ones who came out with the first one. Uh, and then a friend of theirs, Greg Burns, he was a, a, a also another El Paso local. He made some out of you know his carpet and carpet padding, just <laughs> glued together, and and he gave me one, about thirty by thirty inches, just like that one I had you bouldering
0: with the <laughs> yeah. other day. Except so for you, you had brand new foam in it, we
1: had used carpet
0: padding. <laughs> for people but, listening, it was about an inch thick, thirty inches wide by thirty inches long. It's about the size the size of a modern small slider pad. Yeah. Maybe a little little bigger than that. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and. uh
1: well, I mean, that changed things right there. Holy smokes. Uh, really? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, okay. Okay. When we went over to Crash Dummy. Yeah. Say, okay, I let you use that pad, <laughs> the affectionately named cocktail napkin, uh, on that. Now, you just squeaked that problem out on the last try of the day. It's true. Right before we had to leave. Yep. You think you would have done it if you didn't have that one bit of padding at that crucial move? Uh, yeah, I that, don't think so. That's I, a good point. I don't think so. <laughs> you're, you're probably right. If so, I was it, able to even somewhat that,
0: protect the even scariest Even that move, little
1: thing, knowing that you weren't going to have a bruised <laughs> tailbone was enough to... A broken back. You know, maybe, you know, urge you on. Yeah, yeah, you only had it for one move. Yeah. You know, in one spot, and you hoped if you fell, it was going to be that spot, but you had to pick the place... <laughs> On the problem <laughs> where it would do you the most good. And and it might not be the crux. It might be the spot where, you know, it would prevent the where worst the, injury.
0: The fall would be the worst, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, uh, so anyway, yeah, you know, that was, you know, and back then, you, uh, yeah, you had one pad.
0: Mm.
1: You, you didn't carry multiple pads. That was much later. <laughs> and uh, and then, you know, if you and your partner had a pad, then you had two pads. Cool. You know,
0: how many did I make you trudge up there today? That was awesome. <laughs> Thank you. By the way, you're <laughs> welcome. Yeah, I think I brought three. My my normal pad stack up. Well, that's something I want to ask you too. So you had um you had chalk at the time. That was well established. Oh I, yeah, Well
1: from the day one. You yeah, know, that was that was something that I was introduced to right when I started climbing. Okay, and to me it seemed like okay, this is what people do. Everybody does it. Yeah. It wasn't until later that I went, d- went to areas where, oh, no, we don't use chalk. You know, uh, Czech Republic, mm. they still don't. Right. You know, Flagstaff, now they do like crazy, but they didn't when really? I first went there. Yeah. Flagstaff, Arizona? Yeah. Huh. I, was, I, was, I was putting routes up there, but they wouldn't give me credit for first ascents because chalk was aid. Wow. And and then when somebody would climb it without chalk, then they'd give them the the, the credit and let them name the route. <laughs> wow, crazy! <laughs> well, it, you know, hey, it does you know, help. I mean, but but you know, to, to be clear about that was I didn't use chalk on anything there that was already in the guidebook. Okay, I climbed in the style that they you know that those things were put up in. Yeah, and. And the only things I used chalk on were first ascents, or as they would say, you know, non ascents, non ascents, or
0: whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, rest assured, I'm not sitting here judging you for. Oh, using whatever, chalk. I don't. You I know, hate it, it, that, about you know that 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 <clears throat> you know, some of these things
1: are back in the past, and and it was a big deal at the time, but it it seems silly now. I mean, I was like. Oh, I, I just heard uh, Caluse and Bisharat kind of calling me out for being, you know, so outspoken about trad ethics and that, you know, sport climbing was going to be the end of climbing. And, uh, and it, was. it was. It was the end of climbing as I learned it, mm. trad climbing. Because now, you know, I mean, how many people you know lower after they fall? If they can get back onto the rock, they don't. They right. work the moves out. How many people go all the way back down to the bottom of the climb and climb all the way up through all those moves to work that one move they just fell off of for the fourth time that day? Nobody. Yeah. No, sounds, no. So, sounds horrible, honestly. So that
0: style of climbing, it died out. But I see that happen with ground up bouldering sometimes, but that's, that's pretty rare. You know, these days... Uh, The big
1: problem as I see it in these situations is that if you use the same terminology and call it the same thing, then you denigrate what came before. And that's intentional. You know, it's just like, oh, we don't want to play by the rules of the generation before us. So we're going to play by our own rules, but we're going to call it the same thing. We're going to say it's still a free ascent even if you hang on the rope to work the moves out. Now, when I started climbing, no, if you hung on the rope to work the moves out, you, that was age. You couldn't claim a free ascent. Mm. And so if they came up with a different name for it, the first sport ascent, that would have been a fine one. I would have come up with something more derogatory, but <laughs> but if you come up with, the, you, know, you just call it the first sport ascent then fine. Yeah. Then the first free ascent still awaits somebody who wants to climb in the other style. Mm. But if you give the first free ascent to somebody who is cheating by the standards of the day, then that steals it from the people who weren't. An example would be, uh, there's a climb called fire and ice in El Dorado. And there are a number of people kind of threw themselves at it, very poorly protected. Um, I remember I I was one of them. I fell on a flared pin scar. I had stacked a two and three stopper in this flared pin scar. It was too flared to take a a regular nut. But if you stacked them just right, you couldn't tug the thing out. And and I I fell, and my feet hit this—there's a little ledge at the bottom about three feet above the ground— my feet hit that, and I was about to land on my back as I launched backwards. And that stack two and three stopper held enough that I didn't, like, smack my back. Oh, wow. And, you know, so so we were all going up, and, and we were waiting to see who would be so fucking badass that they would crack that thing. They would be good enough to do the moves. They would be cool enough to keep their shit together, doing it with with, you know, minimal minimal pro and then somebody went in by and slapped the bolt in Mm. fired it and it's like well whatever if we put the bolt in we would have all done it Mm. you know but you know all of a sudden that challenge was taken away that a bunch of people had tried to to they had accepted the challenge but they had failed and we all wanted to see who would be the person who accepted the challenge and succeeded Mm. where we failed you know and then Man, hats off to that person, you know? Yeah. And, but that, that, throughout the history of climbing, so I'm not just bitching about my generation. I mean, every generation will be able to bitch about this. You take the sport, early sport climbers who, when they've red pointed, well, you know, there's the red point and then the pink point if you already had to draw his clip, you know, but now... Pink point. Nobody says that anymore. Right. You red pointed if the draws are pre clipped for you, and 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 uh, and you know, Kurt Albert's probably turning over in his grave about that. <laughs> you know. Um, cheers to Kurt. He's a great guy. Mm. Cheers to Kurt. Boom. I got to climb with him once, and uh,
0: it was a really fun day. Oh man. Yeah. You know, I I think. um I understand that perspective a lot better. I understand what bothers you about how things have changed after that day climbing together. Cause at first I was like, I don't know. I'd heard you. I don't know if gripe is too harsh a word, but kind of gripe about what grades have done and what changes in, in ethics have done to climbing and what's been lost. And I just didn't really get it. You know, I was just like, okay, this guy is having trouble accepting just the evolution of climbing and things inevitably change. But I I now understand that it's us doing things differently in a different style that's less badass and calling it the same thing as what guys in your generation did. And and so those pioneers aren't getting necessarily the credit that they deserve for the way that they experienced climbing and the, the successes that they had in climbing. Is that, yeah, is that you know, that, it?
1: that's it to some extent, but it, but it, it, I mean, here's a good example. Fortunately, I haven't been asked it this season, but I got asked it a couple times last season. Somebody goes like, how many times did you, you know, top rope C sport bot run before you did it? Mm. I'm going, what the fuck? Zero. You douchebag. <laughs> Holy smokes, and I didn't have a fucking ocean of foam underneath me either, you know? I climbed up, then I climbed back down it. I climbed up, It. climbed back down, I climbed up, it climbed, it. climbed down it until I was ready, and I knew in my mind that I was going to do that thing, and I swear to God, that was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. I'm up there at the last move, and I'm going like, okay, I'm jumping for the lip now, because I didn't... <laughs> I hadn't... I don't know if I didn't see it or clue into it. There's a little crimp off to the right that everybody uses now. But, man, I jumped from those low holds to the lip. Woo. And I was halfway through the jump before I decided which hand I was going to lip with. <laughs> I was fully freaking committed. Yeah. Oh, my God. When I pulled over the lip, man, my adrenaline was just like fucking, you know, as high as it could possibly be. Such an amazing experience. And then for somebody to say, how many times did you top rope that thing? Because right now, everybody seems to assume that. Mm. And I think, I mean, it's really sad to think that people think that, you know, John Gill must have top rope the thimble before he did it. No, that was one of the most mind-blowing feats of his generation, of any generation. And for people to assume that, you know, he was climbing whatever style that people climb in now because people refuse to come up with new names for what they're doing. Yeah. I don't have any problem with how people do things now. I just have a problem with people calling it the same thing I was doing back then or what Gil was doing back then or or anything. But every generation is going to have their problems with the next generation. And, you know, everybody out there who's in the current hip generation and you guys are setting, you know, you're you're you know the biggest numbers now and everything like that get ready it's coming <laughs> you know because you know i i was i mean i was pissed off back in the day you know about sport climbers you know climbing the way they did and everything like that but now those sport climbers are pissed off at the sport climbers nowadays who don't climb in the way that they did back then and then when you see the generation that pissed you off get pissed off by the generation that supplants them then all of a sudden you're free.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I do. That is interesting to think about. I wonder what might change in bouldering or sport climbing that someone in my generation would consider cheating and have a hard time with. Gek skin. Yeah, totally. Some like weird new skin. No, it's, a, it, it's patented. Gek skin? Gek skin? Geck, like Gecko it was skin? made by, I think, MIT engineers or
1: somebody like that. Look it up. I don't know why. <laughs> it, it's, it's totally just, it, it was a. A big science story at the time. God, maybe it was all fraudulent. I don't know, but I, I, I keep I'm imagining wondering like why it didn't Spider-Man happen. But, but it was like a yeah, exactly. You climb on glass with it. You could take a a, a a smooth wall, put this material on it, and hang a big screen TV off of it. Whoa. It was like Velcro, but with no adhesive backing, so that you could peel it off the wall, and the wall would look just the same. So imagine having gloves made of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And what they did was they like they they analyzed gecko feet because geckos can, you know, walk up you know, glass windows and across ceilings and shit, you know. And many people have done that, trying to figure out how they do that. And you know, it was, what, this is it some electrostatic charge? They got all these little hairy things on the end of their feet and stuff. And they realized that there's, there's like a, a for every one of those little hairs there, there's a muscle that that operates that hair and stuff like that. Wow. And somehow they managed to make a cheap way to manufacture a product that mimics the way the gecko you know, little hairy feet work. <laughs> no way. <laughs> and I was just going like, this is going to destroy climbing forever. It seems like you just get, You, be you, you get these and I, I could have a pair of geck skin gloves and I could just like, you know, solo past tommy on the dawn wall going hey how's it going i could i could pose for that beer photo Woo-hoo, you know and just keep going I mean, it'd be like crazy you know and so uh, i'm kind of glad we don't hear about that anymore but trust me they'll find some way to piss your generation off it's gonna happen that's, yeah it's that's interesting <laughs> Happens I would... to every generation uh, here we'll just go back historical tidbit yeah i think we should please. go back the swiss guides who were like you know they they kind of wanted to think that they were the be all end all of of the climbing world back in like the early 1900s or whatever. Oh my God, they were aghast when somebody learned how to belay a leader fall. Mm. Why? Why? That's cheating. If the leader falls, he must die. <laughs> that's the way it is. You know. I mean, and that, that was that. That was the that was the attitude. You yeah. know. I mean, it. it you know. So. Even something that seems as commonsensical as finding a way to catch a falling leader so they don't die was met with resistance by, you know, the the generation before.
0: Yeah. so That is fascinating yeah. to think about. Just to fill in a little context before we move on. So, C-Spot Run, you mentioned that one. And that's probably the most, probably the best and most famous V6 in Waco. It's this highball, beautiful thing. I don't know what is it twenty feet to the lip, something like that. Yeah, maybe. That's yeah, twenty feet trying. to the lip or something, and you're just you're just straight above a flat slab of rock. So now, well, if not you, that flat. <laughs> it's not that flat, but it's rock. You take it's the pads not, away, you take a look at that sure. thing. Man. <laughs> it's not dirt. It's not like it's no. rock, you know. No, so,
1: it's got undulations. You will yeah. you will snap your legs in in bad places. if, yeah. if you if you hit that slab, and, and it's happened. Some people have missed their pads. And gone off with compound Ooh. fractures and stuff, and Ouch. yeah, not not a
0: no, not not good. And so you did it ground up first ascent with no pads. I might have had the cocktail napkin.
1: <laughs> I can't remember back then. It was it was uh, right around that what, what, era. What were but the, but, of but you the whole thing is that thing. like what you know, like the cocktail napkin. If I had it, I probably had it just for the first move, right, or something like that, yeah. so that. You know, you know, because the, the moves are, are harder down low than they are up high. And if I'm going to fall, I'll save save my feet on that. I'm not going to fall up high. Mm. I don't. I mean, you know, that's that was part of highballing back then was okay. You know, here's the whole thing is like I wanted the f- I wanted every bit of fucking challenge out of that that it had to offer. You know, and I still do now. Like that thing I did today. I mean, you know, that was that was a wonderful freaking experience because I didn't know what to expect up there. I just, you know, I I had to figure it all out on the fly, and and I love that. So you know, going up on that one, it was like, well, when I grab that lip, that's going to be the first time I ever grab that lip, and maybe the last because I'm going to fucking send the damn thing, you know. <laughs> um, but you know, I I I wanted to have that whole experience of like, okay, I don't, you know. Caveat here is at the time I had no idea that Bob Murray had top roped it years before, oh okay, so mine was not the first ascent, but it was the first time it was done as a uh, you know a high ball boulder problem without a rope, and it was done ground up it was done with no rehearsal whatsoever uh on a rope or or a shoulder stand or a ladder or any of that bullshit no it was it was just me and a boulder and so I had to, you know, I you know, I had to struggle with, you know, well, what if I screw up, you know? Am I good enough? Is anybody good enough? Nobody's done this, as far as I knew at the time, you know? All that made for an amazing experience, like a really whole experience, life-changing sort of thing where, like, mm. wow, this is, you know, you, I mean, I... I don't really know how to say it to people who don't who haven't done it, it that, that you know when you when you put yourself in a situation where you're going to find out what you're made of and you might find out you're not made of what you think and be and you're going and you're going to realize that when you're on the gurney going into the emergency room <laughs> you know and so those experiences are you know, some of the most powerful, I think, you can have climbing. And you probably, you know, if you want to talk to any real high-end alpine climbers out there, you know, really you know pushing it in the, in the big mountains on first ascents out there and whatnot, you know, yeah, they'll understand. I don't think you're going to find too many gym climbers that that will understand, mm. you know. Uh, this, you know, I mean, that's another thing. I guess if you want to say... Climbing gyms or technology, that surely climbed, changed the sport massively.
0: Climbing gyms. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, but, uh, but, yeah, it's just, you know, uh, we talked about this a little bit before, but for the, the audience here, it's just like I really feel that there's so many layers to the bouldering experience. The more layers you have, the richer the experience the more, you know, I don't know, you know life-changing it can be. I don't I, 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 That's a, I don't know, a lousy phrase, but trying to come up with something good for, you know, how important it is to me and I believe to anybody who goes through it. You know, it, when, when you deal with all those layers of self-doubt and, and self-confidence and having to read the rock and, and determine the route and see that the route could go up there in the first place and everything. Or if you want to even take it further, I mean, like one of the favorite things I have to do is going out and finding entire new areas mm. and developing an entire area. And first off, you got to find the area. That's not easy. You know, I've found Getting some good ones in my career, but I've been at it for a long time, as we yeah. said, you know. Um, but, you know, to to go and find an entire new place nobody's climbed at, wow, you know, that's, that's really tough. Or to come to some place, you know, like Quaco, obviously I was told that this place existed, so I didn't have that level of the experience. I wasn't, with the, you know, by any means, you know, one of the first people to climb here. I mean, I think the first people were like back in the 50s. Royal Robbins was stationed out at Fort Bliss. He climbed out here. I talked to him about it. But but anyway, you know, to be able to come out here then a layer down, I didn't have to discover it. I was told about it. But then to go out and discover, find so many cool problems to do and look at these virgin rocks and say, Ooh, I see a line here. I see a line here. I see a line here. Oh, my God. I showed you that one. This this morning i was going like i just saw a hold i said man i want to do a problem off that hold that hold looks really cool and it's in just the right spot and okay now where are the moves leading up to it where are the moves leading away from it you know figure it out do it and by doing it ground up i got up high and i was going like okay i've never been up here before uh as far as i know people have always been climbing off to the left of where i am or whatever but I think I see enough. I'll I'll get up there and I'll figure it out. And if I don't, I'll have to climb myself out of trouble. Mm. And I, you know, I went up there. Fortunately, everything was there. But I got a great adrenaline buzz out of it. It was really fun. And uh, <laughs> I was just like, uh, telling Blake there, I was going, God damn it. I said I was going to come here. I wasn't going to do anything stupid <laughs> this season and and i just did that as, oh god it felt so good to be <laughs> stupid oh man i love this <laughs> i love taking those risks and yeah and uh and <clears throat> i I, uh, I i don't see that disappearing from bouldering because i think there's always going to be people like me who are going to embrace yeah that but then there's you know but nowadays more and more you know as it becomes more common to well i might be wrong because like you know, i mean you look at you know, hang dogging, everybody does it now. I mean, who who lowers after they fall? They no, work the moves but, out. I yeah. don't know I don't know anybody now anymore that, that does that. You know, so very well, you know, what I'm talking about right now might be completely lost soon. You know, is mm-hmm. everybody's gonna go like, Okay, well, oh, looks scary up there. Get the rope out, time to rehearse it. But you know, when I started bouldering, it was like, bouldering, you don't use ropes. Mm-hmm. That's by definition. It's not bouldering. If, if you use a rope, it's not bouldering. You know, you're top roping or or if, I mean, if you're using a rope to lead something, you're leading. But but anyway, let's just take how people boulder nowadays and they'll top rope the shit out of something until they're pretty sure that they're not going to be able to, you know, that, that they can do it uh, without falling. Then they take the rope off and pose for Instagram and, and then, boom, there you have it. And, and that's the experience. That's the, the common experience now. If it becomes so commonplace that everybody feels like, okay, this is how you have to do it, then you lose those layers I'm talking about. And each of those layers makes the experience richer, more meaningful, more likely to, to, to make you a lifetime boulderer. Mm you know that bouldering will become your life that will become the most important thing in your life it'll be why you wake up in the morning and what you dream about at night and everything and you know i maybe because i'm not on social media i'm missing out on something but i don't think so hmm, you don't think that I, exists
0: huh? anymore or huh? not you don't think that exists anymore or not as much no I, not as much for sure I want
1: to uh, ask you this. I have a... a I don't, I'm not saying it's dead, but I, I, I'm saying it's
0: on life support. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Yeah, I might I might have to push back on that. I, and I think I can... It'd be interesting to chat about this because I want to show you like a more... Um, a less despairing view of current climbing. Like I think all that same adventure still exists, it just looks a little different. It's not for everybody. There's certainly more people, you know, climbing's more accessible than ever. It's very possible to be a climber and never take any objective risks, given the jams and given the crash pads and whatever else. But I wonder if like the whole experience has just scaled because I think about, take some of the high balls in Bishop, some of the most famous high balls in the world, like Ambrosia and Too Big to Flail, you know, things like that. You mean top rope rehearsed solos? Those aren't highballs. Yeah. What we
1: call highballs, highballing, you don't use a fucking rope, okay? See now here's my problem. But those See, things that, would that, you, not you, be you, they you, wouldn't you be just, done. You just made the uh, the argument for me. You said you were gonna push back, but you just made my argument. You call it the same thing. You call mm. it highballing, but you changed the rules. So it needs a different name. It needs a different name. Oh, I had a different name for it. <laughs> what, you, what would you call it? <laughs> Well, okay. I'm guessing it's not. PC, My buddy Jason Kale. Hi, Jason. <laughs> Please don't take offense again. You got mad last time I said this. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, I mean, he famously did evolution there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And he top roped to practice it and, and then put it together. Well, in his mind, that's a highball. And in a lot of people's mind it is because there's no distinction between that and say what Gil did on the thimble. But there should be a distinction. What Gil did was far more pure. And it was absolutely groundbreaking for the time. The best climbers of his time could not repeat it no matter how hard they tried. They were like, whoa, this guy is absolute next level. He's not human. This guy is a fucking god, you know? Well, anyway... I thought, let's come up with a different name for when you top rope something, work it out, and then solo it instead of, and, and you wanna claim it as a bouldering thing, but let's not call it highballing. How about we call it kale gling? <laughs> as in Jason kale gling.
0: Kale Kale-guling.
1: But as I put it back then, the difference—not to be confused with kegling, which actually whips pussies into shape. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! There it is. There it is. <laughs> there we, have we it. went. We
0: had to go there. I'm sorry, Jason. You're I still mean, my friend. I hope. <laughs> but here's the—I mean, here's the thing, though. So you take the thimble. John Gill was climbing V9, V10 already at the time, and the thimble was like V5. You know, like really technical and. And really tricky, but I think that ground up style necessitates more a more conservative difficulty level relative to that person's ability. Right? Like you have to be able to down climb. Well, okay. Those however many I was times climbing it you at that forward. that level
1: when I did the thimble, and let me tell you, that's a whole <laughs> different fucking matter.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: You want to go out and climb like sex after death or something like that? Fine. No problem. You go climb the thimble. Ha 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 ha. Got another thing coming more. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like, whoa, no. It's you're <laughs> no. It, <laughs> I, I I You can't even compare that. You can't compare the the difficulty <laughs> there. Oh, it's funny, because I remember, you know, I was up there, I was up in South Dakota. I'd already done the thimble at this point. Um and uh, hanging out with some friends up there. And uh, one of them, Chuck, he goes up on the thing, and he takes this wicked fall off the crux. Chuck Freiberger? Yeah. You've there's, seen the video of footage him like of this? <laughs> yeah, man, boom, man, into an ocean of foam. Yeah. And he's still like, oh, fuck, you know? He Didn't he smash and, his and face and then, his and his then then you his knee or, or something? Like, something must have broke since you did it, Verm, you know? And I'm like, uh, you know, I went up to the top, looked down, looked across from the other thing. And was like, Looks the same to me, mm. you know? I'm just going like... You know, no, just because somebody did it, you know, back in 19, I want to say 59, that will put that up. That's incredible. The year I was born. You know? Incredible. Um, or, you know, I mean, people say, oh, can't be that hard if you did it. Well, like, yeah, I don't climb that hard now. You know, I don't climb like I did back then. You yeah. know, you know, you, you know it, it's like, whoa, no, that was a huge deal for me to do that mm. because... I mean, at the time, I didn't know of anybody else who had done it. I had heard rumors, and I tried to track those rumors down. But it, it, at that point, I couldn't confirm any of the rumors I had heard. Later, I found out of, of some people who had done it. But, you know, I went up there. Here we go with the layers again, okay? Here's this famous problem that Gil has done. And it, and as far as I know, oh, no, I think he did it in 61. Anyway. And I think I was there in 91. So like 30 years later, nobody's sure if anybody's ever repeated it. Maybe, maybe not. You know, there's rumors about. But at the same time, holy smokes, if only one person is repeated it or two or whatever in that amount of time, it's like, okay, this thing is freaking badass. And, and, it's, you know, and it was known about because it was the opening chapter in Master of Rock. Mm. It was all about the thimble. It's called like a turning of the soul. I mean, holy smokes. Anyway, you know, this thing was built up in the psyche of American bouldering. You know, just not, you know, any of us boulders back in the day, it's like, whoa, you know, there's, that's the ultimate expression of, of bouldering then.
0: Well, it's funny because not, it's, not it's not a compar- solo. You know, it's huh? not, I mean, it's, how tall is it? 40 feet, 45 feet? No, it's not that high. Okay. No, you're still going to break your legs though. Um, <laughs>
1: no, nah, it's like maybe 35. 35, we'll yeah. Um, yeah, and he had a guardrail underneath him. That was gone by the time anybody repeated it. Wow. You know, I mean, it uh, that was such an amazing ascent. Amazing. And, uh, you know, and then, wow, no, I mean... Well, I'm going to talk about my ascent on it because it was like such an amazing experience. Why I, you know, when you want to try to compare that, oh, well, I was only va <laughs> va you know, <economic>, he <laughs> that No, man, I was up there, and people who know me know I'm not into a lot of kind of, you know, I mean, I'm the son of an engineer. I'm a you know scientist. You know, I'm a just by, you know, education and stuff like that, and and everything. You know, pretty logical person who, you know, needs scientific proof to believe anything. Mm. So, uh, and you know, and, and hold to the scientific method. Yeah, not going to take anybody's word for anything. And a lot of like, kind of, uh, you know, I don't know what you you know, call it. You know, new agey mumbo jumbo stuff about you know. People having out-of-body experiences and shit didn't believe any of that crap. Okay. But, man, when the time I did the thimble, I got up there. I'd gone up and down, up and down, backed off the thing a number of times. I just couldn't get my left hand. I couldn't find a sequence to get my left hand on this hold to reach out right and commit to the final sequences. And it was just like, oh, man, you know. And, you know, and it's high enough up, I was just going like, whoa, no, I can't fall from here just can't, and I don't want to do this move. And I didn't have the guardrail underneath me. And I did have a pad, because I got pictures of it. But it was like one of those, the old carpet and carpet <laughs> foam one there. My sneakers
0: are next to it, and the sneakers you need are a, taller you than need the pad. need a different name for that. That's not a the, pad. I don't know the, what that the, is. The, <laughs> yeah, the, carpet strip. A welcome, I a welcome mat?
1: I don't know. Welcome
0: welcome mat. You had a welcome but, mat. But,
1: but anyway, yeah. I mean, it, you know, and, the, and from up that high, whether you were going to hit it or not was kind of a a crapshoot. Right. Uh, anyway, I wasn't going to do a whole lot, but I, you know, I, I threw it down where I thought it would do the most good if, 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 I was lucky enough to hit it. And, uh, I was like, man, you know, not this trip. And, uh, so I went over and I led like Harry pin. which just like, you know, one of the scary routes of the day back then, you know, just like, so I wouldn't feel like a complete total pussy. And, <laughs> You know, and, and, and I was there with Wilford, and he leads Super Pin, I lead, lead Harry Pin. They're like the two uh, uh, classic scary lines in the, in the uh, Ten Pins area. And then, you know, have a couple beers afterwards, and we're driving out. We're going back to Colorado. But we got to drive by the Thimble to drive out. I was going like, oh, God damn a pull over, man. I, got, I want to try it one more time. It's starting to get dark. So I, I start heading up it. And this time I find this you know, triple match sequence on these little knobs the size of sugar cubes and finally get my left hand where I want it. I'm like, whoa, okay, here we go. And I reach out right to this crystal that I haven't been to before I'm going like, okay, now this is it, man. Once you let go of that left hand, you're going to the top. And at that point, for want of a better way of explaining it, I had my, my out-of-body experience. I've only had one, <laughs> but I remember, if feeling like I was floating behind, you know, like maybe five feet behind, like drone's-eye view of the boulder or whatever, watching myself climb, and it was utterly effortless. Whoa! I just went from hold to hold. I remember, like, there's all these tourists down there. There's a uh, you know popular tourist pullout. And it was dark enough that their, the flashes on their cameras were going off, and the, the 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 rock would light up and then go dark and light up and go dark. And this one woman says, "Oh, he's climbing just like a monkey up there," and and I'm just like, "Whoa!" And I'm just like, shh, shh. and it was just like it was it was a I was experience like nothing I'd ever had in my life, nothing I ever believed was possible. And then one move from the top, I snapped out of it. I'm like, oh, motherfucker, i was so <laughs> far up here. Oh, shit. And I go lunging for this big crystal <laughs> at the top and grab it and pull over the top. I go, oh, my God. <laughs> and I just sat on top in disbelief for like, I don't know how long, just going like, "I, I, I did I just climb? I, I just climbed a thimble. I mean, it was like, whoa. It was, it was just like mind-boggling but it was built up so much in my mind and in everybody's mind and bouldering back then that you know this was such a big deal and it was for me it was a mm. monstrously big deal and uh yeah i'd love to have that experience again been trying but that was 30 years ago
0: now i haven't had it again <laughs> you know wow that's fascinating. Did that? Did that change your sense of? I don't know any deeper spirituality or like sense of what hell might no. be. A, hell no! Okay. Yeah, I'm not too surprised.
1: Oh no, maybe I, maybe I just tried to reach it again through alcohol. But <laughs> <it>
0: never worked. <laughs> well, I, I have some uh, some quicker questions. I have some curiosities that I want to make sure we get to because we're already we're already getting into this thing. So I'm, si- I'm sitting here. I've got two pages of notes. I think I've asked you one question from my notes here. So I want to get to some of these before we okay. move on. Um, one of the things I've been really curious about. I, so we climbed today and seeing, like thinking back to the equipment you're using, contrasting it with today, you're still holding on to some, like John Sherman, you, you still use different equipment than other people. And there's a few different things that stood out to me. There's like three things. So the first one. And I've seen this in your old bouldering videos too, and it still is a thing to this day. Two chalk bags. Why do you use two chalk bags? Same reason I have two shoes on. So John wears two chalk bags, like positioned basically as holsters on his hips.
1: Yeah. Well, so I save energy.
0: Just quicker to get...
1: Yeah, you don't have there. to fish around. How many times you see somebody, like, hanging on a hole trying to find their chalk bag? <laughs> it's behind their back. It's on their opposite hip. They're they're hanging, 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 getting pumped, trying to find a damn thing. Yeah. Boom. I'm, boom. I'm in, I'm out, I'm going. Have you always chalk done that? Chalk bags are light. I started that with uh, Alex Sharp. I was climbing with this guy who's an expat uh, Brit who lived in Boulder. Tremendous drag climber. Oh, my God, he was good. He was... Huge influence on my climbing. I wanted to be able to climb like him. And one of the things he did is he used two chalk bags. Um, It made perfect sense. You know, that guy could seemingly, one, he could hang on forever. He probably could have done it with one. But but he was like really good at keeping an incredibly cool head on really sketchy, uh, sketchily protected climbs of high difficulty and just still going ahead, still forging forward and just keeping it together. Um, to have that level of endurance that you can you know, when it gets really tricky and you're trying to process so many things through your head at the same time uh, and you know, make it up this thing without killing yourself and having the endurance to be able to hang out there long enough to do it, it's just like, wow, I mm. want to be like that. Mm. That That is, you know, mastery there. You know, that, that shows like, wow, you know, this guy knows what it takes and he is he's got the technique he's got the endurance and he's got the head and so and then another one like that was actually another Brit gosh I can't believe I'm giving the Brits so much love here (laughs) but uh, Andy Parkin okay he was uh he was in Boulder for a while there too incredible climber same deal go up on these things with like, you know, sketchy pro long runouts, you know, really physical sort of things and he would just keep us freaking cool. Like you wouldn't believe. I was like, dang. So, can't remember if he had two chalk bags or not, but I picked <laughs> but I picked up the two chalk bags from Alec and it works. And anybody, you know, I've I've let people use mine sometimes and they're like, it works, but they're just going to go back with one because they don't want to look funny. Does, and do you I think that's I, it? Oh, you, hell yeah. They
0: think it works better, but they're just not willing to look goofy? Oh, yeah. I,
1: I think a lot, oh, an awful lot of climbing stuff is, you know, like why don't people wear helmets bouldering, mm. you know? I mean, like when I'm bouldering by myself, I wear them a lot hmm. because like, well, time for a story? Sure, sure, okay. So I'm out in uh, New Jersey, working on Stone Crusade. I'd heard about this bouldering area there uh, that was, um, it's like a local Princeton bouldering area. It's pretty much forgotten now from, you know, talking to some Jersey climbers the other day, but it's a place called Cradle Rock. And I went out there, you know, uh, went climbing with some of the locals. They showed me around. And uh then uh I was gonna leave and I was you know staying at a house with a, one of the local climbers kind enough to let me stay there, uh Mark Gravat, I think his name was. And uh I said, Hey, thanks a lot for uh, showing me around and let me stay here and everything. I'm gonna go run over there and try that that mantle problem again before I leave and then I'm on uh, down the road. So anyway, you know, thanks for the hospitality and everything. So I pretty much said my goodbyes, and I go over to the bouldering area, I'm out there by myself. It's fall, and a uh, you know, ton of leaves everywhere. Beautiful. It was gorgeous. Like all these like, yellow leaves and, every, and red leaves everywhere. And uh, so I'm just warming up on this problem. I get to the top, and the top's all covered in leaves. I'm going like, oh, man, I, I think I'll just down-climb this problem instead. Of trying to mantle over and all these leaves and stuff, seems like it's safer. So I'm down climbing it, and I'd only climbed in the area for a couple of days, so uh, but I thought I knew the rock better than I did. I thought I had a, a, a good handle on its characteristics. And, uh, so I'm climbing down. I've got my toe jammed in this pretty wide open flare. and uh, and then it's like, I remember, God, there's one kind of tricky move at the bottom. Tell you what, I'm just going to jump off from here because there's all these rocks underneath me. Um, uh, And if I jump now, I can just aim and stick the landing on top of this one rock. So I jump. Well, my toe sticks in the flare. Oh. I flip upside down. I stick the landing on the rock with my head. Oh, man. Well, I got no idea how long i was knocked out for or if i was knocked out i got no freaking clue uh next thing i know though it was like oh i see my pad underneath this this ret thing with a mantle on top of it over there oh, i guess i should go climb that you know so i i go over there but this I is still, after this is into- after hitting on my laying <laughs> on my head no, th- no. Th- this is how out of it I was, okay? This is why I wear a helmet, okay? <laughs> okay. So I go over to this problem, and I'm trying to problem. I get up to the mantle. I trying to press the mantle. Like, oh, man, my wrist hurts. It hurts bad. Well, as I later found out, I'd broken my wrist. Of course, it hurt Oh, bad. God. <laughs> but I was so out of it, I didn't even know I'd broken my wrist. I didn't even know I'd landed on my head or anything, you know? All I knew is it's like, well, there's the pad. There's the boulder problem. I I guess that's what I'm supposed to do. And then, so I sit down and I'm, you know, take my climbing shoes off. I'll call it a day, my wrist hurts. And, uh, you know, put on my sneakers and get all packed up. And then I stand up and I'm going like, where am I? Whoa. I couldn't have told you what. Freaking planet I was on. Whoa! I didn't know what year it was, what date it was, didn't know who the president was. All those questions they ask you when they're wheeling you into the ambulance, you know, I couldn't oh, answer six. a single one of them. That's so scary. I was I was A and O times zero, as as they say in in woofer terms. And it was just like holy shit. And then I was going, well, what do I do? Well, I look around for a trail. But the leaves had covered everything because they'd just fallen off, and I couldn't find a trail. And, and then it's like, ah, man. So I start walking downhill. I said, well, I'm going to go downhill and hope I run into a house because it's going to be easier to walk downhill than to you know, walk uphill. And I've got no idea what's in any direction, so let's go the easy way. Mm-hmm. Wow. I go downhill. I find this house. It's like a mansion the Eagles rest or something like that. It had like a fancy name like that on it. And I go up to the front door and I, I knock on the door. Football player looking dude answers the door. And I say, Hey man, uh, I, I landed on my head out there. And I, I can you call me an ambulance? And he's like, you wait out here because I'm like dripping blood all oh. over their porch. I mean, I was like bleeding out of the head and shit. <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> And <laughs> you know, so they, you guys, they called me in the ambulance, they'd take me off to the hospital. By the time I got to the hospital and they checked me out, I was starting to piece things together. I knew I was, yeah, I knew where I was and stuff like that, but I I still, you know, there's a, there's a, I don't know how big a gap there is because there was nobody there to tell me. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so, you know, it's weird. Like, when you know, when I was a kid, bike helmets weren't a thing yeah and now if you let your kid ride out the house without a bike helmet on hell they'd be calling child protective services right you you know right that i'm kind of surprised that like you know wearing a helmet for bouldering where you land on you know the chances of landing on your head are pretty high has not become a thing hmm now I do that. I mean, I believe Kevin Jorgensen told me he wore a helmet on Ambrosia. He can correct me if I uh, if I'm wrong on that. But uh, he's one of the few notable exceptions of a very strong boulder who understands that, like, oh, this is not, uh, you know, this is serious enough. I, I I shouldn't be vain now, right? And you know, but as but as I put it, it's just like you know, I mean. Yeah, the reason people don't wear helmets is vanity, and I go with kind of a a double reverse vanity argument here. Is that like, well, gosh damn it, I'll wear one because I'm cool enough I can get away with it. <laughs> nice, and I like that. So, I so, like that. so, Make it maybe I have a degree of vanity that's even beyond those who. <laughs> <laughs> who are too scared to wear it because they're afraid people are going to think they look funny. But I got so much cool to spare. People can think I look funny, and I still got plenty. So there you have it. But I was wearing one in the Triple Crown bouldering contest because I'd had a, a you know a recent head injury or something like that. And, oh, yeah, some kids came up to me, and they were like, ha, ha, hey, what's up with the, with the helmet, you know? I'm thinking I'm some total gummy. I say... Well, see you guys up on the podium. I was on the podium every event. I didn't see them up there, <laughs> you know. And I, yeah, yeah, I crushed my division, man, absolutely, and uh, uh, won the whole thing.
0: So, what kind of a helmet do you like to wear for bouldering these days?
1: <sighs> well, whatever I've got around. The other day, I forgot one, and so I, I, I had my beanie, and I stuffed my gloves under my beanie. <laughs> right at the spot I thought my head might impact. Okay. Um, I had a helmet I modified from a, a skateboarding helmet. And it was like a youth model or whatever. It's kind of small. So I had to carve it out to fit my head a bit better. Okay. But I carved it out in the front because chances of landing on your face and on the front of the helmet are pretty slim.
0: Yeah. The f-
1: chances of popping off backwards and having a heel hook, you know, stay in or something like that and land you on the back of your head. That's pretty high, so I left the padding back there, and trimmed it to reach the you know fit the rest. And I had this super cool paint job done by, <laughs> by this guy who paints hockey hockey face masks. Nice. And uh, oh no, you no, know, it, it was like a skull with all these fractures in it and plates in it. Well, like one for each concussion I'd had. <laughs> back then was like seven or something like that. What's what do you something? have to now? Oh fuck, I don't know. At least eight, um, maybe more. Probably more. I mean, those are the ones I can remember. <laughs>
0: yeah, right, right, right.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and there's like chunks of brain matter coming out of it and stuff. it was really cool. And I thought, hey, maybe if I get one that's cool enough, people will like. Oh man, I want one of those too. But I know it just like, yeah. But it's the same thing in skiing. My God, nobody would be seeing on the slopes with a helmet on mm. back in the day, unless you were a downhill racer. Mm-hmm. But if you wore a helmet and you weren't a downhill racer, that meant you were some sort of tosser who was trying to look like a downhill racer. And then that was even more embarrassing. Oh, funny. And then when Sonny Bono died of a uh, head injury skiing or whatever, and then one of the Kennedys did or something like that. And back to back, same season, I think, all of a sudden it became a big public thing. People realized, whoa, if it happens to these celebrities, you know, it could happen to me. Mm. helmet sales freaking took off and then all of a sudden you'd go to the to the slopes and half the people were wearing helmets like one year later
0: yeah yeah and now so, they're ubiquitous yeah you
1: know i don't wear them as much as i i did before maybe because it's been a while since i've knocked myself silly but i, I certainly wear them when uh uh i feel it's appropriate concussions aren't something you want to mess with and you don't want to have and if you can do something to prevent them, you should. That's just being, you know, I mean, smart is an understatement. It's like, yeah. And as soon as you get one, it's easier to get another one. And when you've got eight, well, the doctors told me if I got another one, I might become a sport climber. So
0: I <laughs> said, I got to be careful. Uh. You mentioned Stone Crusade in that last story. This is a question from Aiden. Uh, what inspired you to write Stone Crusade? And for people listening, can you just give us a quick description of what the book was about? Well, oh, Stone Crusade was kind of a historical guide to bouldering in
1: America. So it turned people onto a lot of bouldering areas that they'd probably never heard of. But it also not just had the stories of the people who developed those areas and stuff, but tried to tie together how the sport evolved in the country.
0: Mm.
1: Like when I first, when I did the first thing, it just kind of went from one side of the country to the other, my first manuscript. And then to his credit, my editor said, uh, or publisher said, Hey, uh, are you satisfied with this? I go, no, but I had to meet my deadline and says, well, if you want more time, I said, yeah, I do, and so I rewrote the whole thing because in the process of doing it, then I had learned a whole bunch about how ideas transferred from one area to another, and and with you know, one person visiting this area or 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 however it went, and it gave me an idea how the sport evolved in uh, in the country, and so then I rewrote it all to try and trace that and and let people have an idea, and it pretty much ends. Right around the advent of pads. Okay. Um, um, I would say that John Gill is the father of modern bouldering, dynamic movement and all that sort of thing, viewing it as a gymnastic pursuit. But then once the pads and V grades came along, that would be like the start of postmodern bouldering, Mm. say, where there was another paradigm shift. Mm Mm-hmm that went on so this is all about the history of the development of modern bouldering in america it starts with gill it follows things through to when things got going in waco tanks and waco tanks is really where the genesis of the postmodern bouldering mm. started that's where the v grades came out of that's where the pads came out of
0: what made you want to write it um
1: god man I always wanted to. I mean, I love bouldering. Nobody was writing about bouldering at the time. Mm. Um, A little while earlier, like uh, back in, I want to say late 70s, maybe around 80 or so, John Long wrote a couple of really seminal articles, one called Pumping Granite, one called Pumping Sandstone, Mm. about bouldering out in Colorado, and then the other one was about bouldering around Idlewild. Okay. Okay. But after that, things just went, bouldering was not, you know, discussed in the magazines or anything like that. Climbing Magazine went the entire decade of the 80s with, I think, maybe two bouldering photos on the cover, both of which I took. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, wow. it was like, uh, I mean, it was, it, was, it was amazing how long, you know, bouldering had been ignored. And it didn't have numbers that people could relate to and once as soon as that came along then all of a sudden oh well the climbing you know climbing magazine now that we can sell bouldering as something cool and hip and new because we got a number system that we can quantify it with and people can relate to that the bigger number means you know oh, bigger is better sort of thing um that boom things took off like that I was writing – well, I was working on the book, you know, before the you know the numbers came out and stuff like that. Um, and I was spun off a number of the chapters into articles in Climbing Magazine. And uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question all that well. I, I can't really remember, you know, waking up someday, I should write a book on the history of bouldering. It was just like, you know, something I loved and I had already done – uh a guidebook to Waco so I had the experience of you know writing a long book Mm. because I mean at that time you know like none of this stuff was mapped out I had to do all the all the groundwork of you know drawing topos of all the boulders and and stuff like that and so it was a a big big project but I had the confidence that I could stick out a big project like that and then it was like well I want to go bouldering all over the country but this gives me an excuse to do it and feel like I'm doing something uh, cool. Im- important, you yeah. know, with my life yeah uh you know my my grandmother had left me some uh a small inheritance then, and it went into writing stone Crusade hmm. uh so I could step away from my horrible career in the oil patch for a little bit and and write that book <laughs> and uh yeah, are you proud of how it turned out, absolutely. Awesome, I mean, when when people go about calling it the Bible, <laughs> well, you met CJ today. Yeah, yeah, I met CJ today. CJ, yeah. you should ask him about it. He told me, okay, he was stationed. He's an Army Ranger. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Oh no, no, he's Special Forces. Damn. And he was, you know, on a you know peacekeeping mission <laughs> like that's what they call it when they when we kill people we don't like I guess <laughs> oh boy <laughs> out, yeah. out in the Middle East you know uh sort of thing and he had a copy of Stone Crusade with him and he credits that with convincing him that he was going to quit a lifetime in the military because he was high up you know he had you know he could have easily been career military and uh, he was you know exceptionally skilled you know he was army ranger. And, uh, he gave that up to live the life of a bouldering nomad.
0: Wow. Because because of the stone crusade.
1: Wow. And I've heard other people say the same thing. And so to, to have, you know, written something and have people come up to me and tell me that changed their life. Wow. Yeah. Hell yeah. I'm proud. I did it. You know, I thought it was great for me, but you know, what it did for other people was even, was even better, Mm. you know, I mean, I just got to travel around and 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 feel like I wasn't, you know, being a, like a, a, you know, some societal heel or whatever. Gave, like, you, you know. gave you purpose. Yeah.
0: Yeah. For that time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the Waco guidebook. Uh, I learned this the other day. So I knew you had written the first Waco guidebook for bouldering. Um, I didn't know. You mentioned that it had like 900 problems up to V9 and you said that you had climbed, you have climbed all of them, but one, which is just awesome. I love that. Um, But I'd wanted to ask you this. I want to fact check something. I had Jason Kale on the podcast about a year ago and I don't remember how it came up, but we were talking about Waco and some of the names of the boulders. And he told me a story. He thought that when you were writing the guidebook, you had all these climbs that didn't have names and you needed to find names for these things. And you went into El Paso and you went to a porn shop and just like wrote down the names of a bunch of pornos for Boulder problems. That's, that's not entirely accurate, but it's not entirely false
1: either. <laughs> Basically, there is, uh, there's a uh, – well, if you've driven down Montana, you know there's the Fiesta X drive in there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I haven't so, paid close attention, but so,
1: sure. <laughs> well, it used to be the only thing on this side of town. Like town used to end right about Lee Trevino. Okay. So anyway, all, you know, like Zaragoza, there wasn't even like, you know, houses along it or buildings or anything, you know, I, any of that stuff past there, boom, it was just blank desert until you got out to the Fiesta Triple X drive in. And, you know, it's here, You if you're going to have a Triple X drive in, you're going to put it way out of town so that it's like, you know, the kids aren't, you know, in the neighborhood aren't watching. Sure. You know, like, you're going, oh, my God, I could drive into that thing. Triple X driving. That's fascinating. Uh, I could drive my van through there. But <laughs> <laughs> this is like... <laughs> anyway.
0: That's amazing. It's uh, hard to but, believe but, that but, was a But thing. they'd have a
1: marquee outside, and they'd have names of these... <laughs> the names of the porno films uh, on the marquee. And you drive by, and some of them were just freaking hilarious, you know? <laughs> So, you know, I mean we see those and go, Oh man, we're naming around that, you know. <laughs> what and are... then uh, and then others were probably just, you know, like <laughs> you know, me and my friends hanging out drunk one night or something like that. And and uh and I don't remember any particular porno magazine, but a, there was somebody had some weird catalog of sex toys once that uh I think some names came out of that. But yeah, it, if you want to back it up a bit, just realize that at this time, you've got a bunch of, you know, twenty-something dudes. Total sausage party down here. Sure, no women bouldering. But basically, women didn't boulder back then, with the exception of like you could count them on your fingers. Mm. You know, Lynn Hill, Bobby Bensman, whatever you, you've heard of a bunch of them. Diane French, whatever. There was just. I mean, I had. I had to really fight to find women to put into Stone Crusade. I wanted them to be included, but they're honestly, it wasn't a big part of bouldering history at that part. Mari Gingery out in Josh Retreat, yeah, she was probably, I I would say, you know, one of the most dedicated, because, you know, obviously Lynn, you know, she was good at bouldering, but she was good at everything. Mm -hmm. Bobby, you know, she liked bouldering. She would go to bouldering contest, to take the money from everybody else. <laughs> Bobby Benson. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no, yeah. she's great. And uh, <laughs> But, you know, she, you know, liked, like I mentioned, you know, with gymnastically inclined going into sport climbing at the time, she embraced that right away and became, you know, one of the top sport climbers of her generation and really paved the way for other women. Um, you know, to like to make it a profession. Mm. You know, she... You know, she's like the giant that they're standing on her shoulders. You know, her and Lynn Hill, say. Mari, though, she was pretty... You know, she was not in there as the professional type. She wasn't making money off of it. She was a a purist boulderer and climber out in Joshua Tree. And she could boulder. Man, she was really good. And uh, so... But, I mean, it's like... I've pretty much rattled off the names that. You know, yeah come come right off the bat there and and they weren't out here yeah you know so it was you know like I said I mean it started out often it was me and nobody and then it might be me and some other dudes I knew <laughs> or whatever and then and then uh it wasn't until pads came out and the, and the sport got quite a bit safer that then um right in that you know that's part of what postmodern bouldering you know, it was pads, it was numbers, you know, sit starts. It was It was all people bouldering the way we were bouldering out in Waco. That just spread throughout the whole world. Mm. And it was somewhat different than how we would have been bouldering before. But it suited this place. It made sense here. And people came here. They did it. They liked it. And so they took it elsewhere. And then it, it just kept spreading and spreading and spreading. Mm. And uh, so, yeah. But anyway... That that story is probably at least 65% true. <laughs> I
0: mean, for people listening that haven't been to Waco, there's some gnarly ones, man, that are like routes that, you know, daily dictos gets done all the time. It's a classic. And, you know, I climbed something the other day called Pump. That was named by Shelley Presson, I believe. Okay. Yeah. She <laughs> named that one.
1: Uh, her, okay, th- this is a funny story. Okay, let's tell this one, okay? Because people get all up in arms over that name. And I'm just going like, oh, my God, if you knew how funny that name was. So <laughs> one of the cla- all-time classic characters of Bouldering, his name was Dick Silly. Okay. He would show up in like a big American sedan. Dick like a, Silly a, a, was his, his name. That's, his, that's, for sh- that's for real his name, Dick Silly. Wow. C-I-L-L-E-Y. Okay. Anyway. Big American uh, sedan, sorry. Big American sedan, like a Lincoln. Okay. Or something like that. Or a Cadillac or or a giant Buick or something like that. Anything anyway, something that was, you know, wide and long and had a big trunk, because the trunk would be filled with climbing gear. And that's how he survived. He sold climbing gear out of his trunk. Hmm. And he would buy and sell climbing gear. He'd buy cheap sell for a profit, enough to keep himself going. And, you know, he was a, a dedicated boulder, and he would come out here, and he would... He was he really wanted to do daily dictos. So he was up there, like, every day working on it. And it hadn't been done yet? It hadn't been done yet. Okay. And then finally, like, Jim Carn, who was, like... He was generation after me, say, like 10 years younger, whatever out of the the sport climbing generation right then and and he was winning a lot of sport climbing contests and stuff like that and he would come here and he could have just really mopped up on new problems he did a few but mostly he was like just doing volume to train for going off to competitions and winning money and uh anyway his girlfriend Shelly Presson Finally, he gets just tired of waiting for Dick because Dick's been trying it forever. And he sends the problem. And Shelly, she was known as uh, being a libidinous gal, shall we say. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and apparently, yeah, well, she was the one uh, who came up with Daily Dick Dose. Is the name because Dick Silly was up there daily, but she enjoyed getting her Dick tattoos <laughs> at the same time. Sorry, Shelly, for telling this,
0: but we well, she, love you. <laughs> she, named, she named the Boulder problem that she. Oh my God! I'm sure no, she's I know. Not well, that's thing. Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah. Well, if you were going to hang out, you know, with the guys who were here at the time, you had to have <laughs> a, a sense of humor, a thick skin, right. whatever. I mean, right. you know, because it was. You know, crazy-ass part of this... This is at the time when people moved into the Quonset hut down there. And, there. you know... uh What do you Pete mean moved in? Pete, like yeah, Pete was there at that point, I guess. Dirt bagging so, it or what? Living yeah, yeah, there were tents there? there. Well, originally, I mean, that place was abandoned. I mean, the first few years we were here, we would go and rip boards off the side to take back to the campground and use for, for firewood. Mm. And then... um I think Skinner decided to move out there and he was kind of living upstairs. It's like, oh my God, it was was called the Quonset Crud. There was a bug that would go around every year because everybody would get each other sick up there. So there's like this, you know... It was just a flu bug factory inside that place. It was horrible. <laughs>
0: Yikes. And well, but anyway, a lot of climbers is this, this lived an old there house? Is this an old house, just abandoned? No, the quad house,
1: house, where you know, like uh, what's it called, the mountain oh, like, shop, oh, or whatever thing. is down there, where Laurel's, uh, Lowell's Lowell's uh, Lowell yeah uh, uh, deal is yeah yep. Pete's yeah old that place, place right. So that's Pete's old place. Yep. So uh, and then I don't know how Pete became in in. Maybe he always owned it or something like that. Anyway, somehow he got, uh, uh, the place and he fixed it up a bit and, and he would cook downstairs for the climbers and stuff like that and charge them a pittance to, to camp there. And, uh, and it became a, you know, a, a legendary climber hang, uh, down there. And so I don't know how we got, I don't know, know that I way. don't know either. Where do we, where do we start on, on, on all of that, but, uh. Yeah, it's uh, we're, we're, oh well, we're talking about daily dick Yeah, daily some, dicks is dick knows, So, anyway, yeah, <laughs> anyway, I want us to say hi to Dick Silly wherever he's at
0: and, <laughs> and oh, say man. thanks,
1: Shelly, for coming up with one of the best names in the park. And amazing, and if you didn't come up with it, well,
0: we're giving you credit anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Let's see here. How much time do we have? I have so we have. We're gonna have to do another one of these vermin. We can do another one. We have so much more we could talk about, but well, we've got about yeah. six minutes before we need to pack up. Oh my goodness! Um, yeah. How did you get the name verm? High school biology teacher. Really? Called
1: me Sherman the vermin. Sherman the vermin. And then it, got, you know, my brother's—he's a little older than I am. He was with that, you know, in that class three years before or whatever. He was Sherman the worm. I was Sherman the vermin, and that got shortened to and... It beats being called John. John is such a boring name. I mean, like, especially in my generation, so many people are named John that if somebody says, Hey John, you know, like half the dudes in the <laughs> room look around and yeah. and they then they only want to talk to one of you, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like ah. so I didn't mind it. Uh, it was just like, oh, Okay, I'll go with it. So
0: All right. Yeah. Well, your high sorry school sorry it wasn't a better story than that. High school biology <laughs> teacher is kinda responsible for the V grades in a way. He is. He is. Yeah. Who would have thunk that? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I want to ask you um, what's next for you, and I have another question here. I mean, God, what's so much for me? So much we didn't get to. Fucking uh, cremation. (laughs) Cremation? Yeah. Fuck!
1: Look at me. (laughs) I could be dead tomorrow. I'm old as fuck. Well, that that works out (laughs) well. So
0: this is from Carmelo, and Carmelo wanted to know: Are we ever going to see Old Man Lightning?
1: Yes, we are. All right. That's still in the works. Okay. Um I don't I don't want to spoil things for people, so okay, I'm, great. I'm just going to say it's in the works. Hopefully sooner, not later. Uh turns out it's very expensive to get stuff edited <laughs> and, and all. So uh but uh fear not. But it's it's Yeah. All there, there, it, it, it's uh hopefully it's a story that P, you know, a lot of people can be inspired by and for a lot of different reasons, mm. you know? Um, yeah, it's been a hell of a journey, I can say that.
0: Mm. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I'm excited to see it. Um, I, wa- I had wanted to ask you about birding. I got some questions about that, like sure. how you got into birding and how you got so hooked on it and stuff. I don't know if we have time to go into it, though. Like, we might have to save it, but... Oh. Um. Um, yeah, you want to save that? We can we can save that. Let's one. save that for round two. But yeah. I'll just ask you this: I I love this question from Craig. You take these amazing photos of birds, and I'll share your Instagram for people that haven't seen it. Like it's beautiful the work that you. Is do. Is it still up there? I think so. I guess so. I I, I couldn't get all. I, you know, like I I haven't been
1: on it or okay. Facebook for years, so don't try to find me through those because okay. I don't look at that. Well, there's great. Um, yeah. I don't even have those apps on my phone. But if the photos are still there. Please look at those because I had a lot of fun taking them and, and hopefully you'll
0: enjoy looking at them. So, yeah. This question from Craig, which bird most represents your personality? <laughs> Wouldn't be a bird, it would be a crab louse, but um,
1: <laughs> which bird? Oh, Grumpy yet majestic. What would that be? <laughs> uh, goofy, reckless. Hmm. Damn. God, I know which birds are my favorite, but it's not because they're like me. <laughs> Let me think about this one. We can hit it in round two. Okay. I love that question, though, yeah. by the way. Thank you. Such a uh, good question. Who,
0: who asked that one? Well, let's replace it with this. You just mentioned your favorite birds. What are your favorite birds and, and why? Condors. California condor. What is it about them? Um, They
1: are critically endangered. There's less than 600 on the whole planet right now. Wow. Uh, But I've gotten to know a number of them as individuals. They all have tags on them. Mm. The population is monitored closely by these biologists, and I've become friends with the biologists, and I I made it a goal to try to photograph every individual condor in the Arizona-Utah population. Wow. And... By doing that, there are some condors I saw over and over and over again, and there's some that I just going, am I ever gonna see this one? But it really opened my eyes, you know, and it just seems silly that my eyes had to be open to this because you know, we look at our our dog or our cat or whatever you know, our house pet, you know, is going like, well, well, my dog's cooler than the neighbor's dog, or or this cat is so chilled compared to the cat I had before, or something like that. We readily Give them credit for being individuals, having mm. their own personalities and everything. Mm. But we don't do that with wildlife. That's true. Because you look at, like, you
0: That's know, if they didn't have
1: the tags on, one condor looks like another once it's reached maturity, you know, or the young ones look like the young ones, the old ones look like the old ones, but you can't even tell males from females, you know? And uh, it's like trying to tell two ravens apart or something like mm. that. So it's hard to, you know, give them credit for having individual. You know, for being individuals, having their individual personalities and everything. But once you start to see the, see them, and you can identify them, then now I see some of them, and I don't need to see the tag, and I know which one it is because wow. I can see how it behaves. And I go like, "Oh, well, obviously that's three fifty four because he's strutting around a bridge, pushing everybody else off their perches." You know? <laughs> And, um, and that's
0: time. <laughs> yeah, that's time.
1: <laughs> well, we, we can go back into that question again. I love. Oh,
0: well, we could. That. Do you want to take like two minutes to just kind of? Okay. Well, I'm sorry. Yeah, here close me. that story and.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> so, it, but anyway, it, it, you know through the condors, I learned that every every creature out there, every animal, every individual is an individual. Mm. Needs to be treated as such. They've got their own life. They've got their own issues, whatever. And that I had never viewed wildlife that way before. And I learned that through being with the condors. And the condors are just freaking cool. Like I got the hold one once <laughs> while they replaced the 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 wing tag. So warm. Way warmer than a lap dog, say. Whoa. Just you know, because they run about like 104 or 5 degrees or something like that. Really. High body temperature, birds run at a temperature that uh well, we were talking about it with that that uh uh dead dove wife found this morning that you know a few degrees higher protein synthesis breaks down, and you know they would just die. They really push it, so physiologically, they are phenomenal creatures It makes humans look so pathetic one one, we can't fly <laughs> you know <laughs> two. Bird brain is not an insult. Mm. It's hilarious because, (laughs) you know, birds are really very intelligent. And even though their brains are quite small, their neural density is way, way higher than that of human brains. So basically, it's like the latest microprocessor in their head and you're still running on a floppy drive. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So, uh, yeah, it's... uh, So they can make so many calculations so quickly. And if you see like a sparrow fly into a mesquite thicket or something like that and make all those maneuvers do that at that speed, mm. you realize how how can their reflexes be that fast? How can they have that much control over their body? Well, a lot of it goes back to their brains being able to have, they have got these super processors in them that can process that information so quickly they can pull that off.
0: Wow.
1: So, but uh yeah, just learning about the condors and their struggles, and having my heart broken when some of them have died. Fuck, mm. uh, like I'm gonna get all choked up now. Um, you know, ones that I've spent time with, and you know, I worked really hard to try to meet them and get a photo of them or something like that, and then you find out that they just died, and it's uh, it's horrible. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, they've they've made me have a whole new view of things, and you know. Made me despise people more, but like animals more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave it at that, man. I'm, I'm going to start bawling here.
0: <laughs> All right. All right. Well, thank you, John. Thank you. It's been really fun to hang out with you the past few days. I've really enjoyed this. Well, cool. And um, yeah, no, yeah it means uh, a lot to have you on. Yeah, let's yeah, do let's, it again.
1: Let's, uh, yeah, I'll be around for a bit. So uh, we can talk about uh, following up and maybe get to more of those questions. yeah, yeah.
0: Hey friends, before you go, just a reminder to check out Chalk Cartel. I actually use this stuff. It's by far my favorite climbing chalk on the market, and if you want to try it yourself, you can save 20% off your next order by using code nugget at checkout. Head over to chalkcartel.com and use code nugget at checkout for 20% off and get ready to start sticking. This is excellent chalk, no bullshit. And be sure to check out the Crimped app. Head over to crimped.com or find the Crimped app in the App Store, it's available on iOS and Android. The free version gives you access to 75 different workouts created by professional coaches Tom Randall and Ali Tor of Lattice Training. And if you download the app, Right now, I will send you the full bonus episode I recorded with Tom Randall recently, all about how to program your training. I'll send you that for free. Just send me an email at steven at thenuggetclimbing.com and make sure the subject says crimped. And I will send you a free copy of that episode, which is usually only available to patrons who support the show, so a really great deal. Because all you have to do is download the app for free. To try it out. And finally, check out Fizzy Vantage for high quality nutrition products designed specifically to support your climbing. Head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off your next order. That's fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off your order. And that is it, my friends. Thank you for listening to the very end. If you loved that conversation with John, stay tuned. We're going to do another one very soon, and we have a lot more to cover. So keep your eye out for that. And in the meantime, I hope you have an amazing week. Much love to all of you, and we will see you next time.